Recovery Elevator, episode 169. I surrounded myself with other friends who drank like I did. So I think I kept telling myself, well, I must be all right because, you know, they all drink the same way I do. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Caroline. She's from New Zealand. She's 40 years old. She's a mother of two, and she's been sober since March 13th, 2017. In her interview, she talks about how drinking stunted her emotional growth. So this episode, number 169, is the precursor to the most important podcast episode to date, which will be episode 170. That's going to come out on May 21st. Now, I'm not trying to build hype to uh, launch a course or something like that. I'm serious on this one. Next episode will be the most important podcast episode yet. So please, I encourage you to listen with an open mind and an open heart. So ironically, the topic for today is actually the perfect segue into next episode. Okay, let's get started. I'm reading one of the most in-depth books about addiction by a guy named Dr. Gaber Mate called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. I'm flying down to this retreat center in Costa Rica. I'm taking notes on the book. I've got a ton of questions. I'm writing the questions down because I want to get this guy on the podcast, but I'm also writing down some pretty interesting content. I agree with some of it. A lot of it I don't agree with. But we'll find out next episode my real take on the subject. So let's get started. Oh, yeah. And after the interview, stay tuned because there's a pretty profound coincidence that happens. Okay, let's get started. Has addiction always been a problem? And before we get into that, um, I'm going to read some cool descriptions of an addiction. One of them is by Eckhart Tolle. He says an addiction is... You no longer feel you have the power to stop, and it feels stronger than you. It also gives you a false sense of pleasure that invariably turns into pain. Yep, lived through that one. Check. Nice job, Eckhart. And here's another one. And this one's from Dr. Gaber Mate. At the core of every addiction is an emptiness based in abject fear. The addict dreads and abhors the present moment. She bends feverishly only towards the next time, the moment when her brain infused with her drug of choice, will briefly experience itself as liberated from the burden of the past and the fear of the future, the two elements that make the present moment intolerable. And hey guys, I'm going to explain exactly what this is in episode 170. It's never been clearer in my life. So again, has addiction always been a thing throughout the history of time? We know that alcohol was not invented in the 1800s, 1700s. It's been around for thousands of years. Has there always been rampant alcohol addiction? And what I found that Gaber Mate wrote about this is profound, and I have to share it with you guys. He says, the precursor to addiction is dislocation. By dislocation, he means the loss of psychological, social, and economic integration into family and culture. A sense of exclusion isolation and powerlessness only chronically and severely dislocated people are vulnerable to addiction the historical correlation to severe dislocation and addiction is strong although alcohol consumption and drunkenness on festive occasions was widespread in europe during the middle ages however only a few people became drunkards or inebriates mass alcoholism was not 
a problem like it is today. So what happened? Yeah, I'm wondering the same thing, Dr. Gaubermate, what happened? So alcohol and alcoholism gradually spread with the beginning of free markets in the 1500s and eventually became a raging epidemic with the dominance of the free market society after 1800. A Dr. DuPont agrees in the realm of hungry ghosts that in pre-modern society, drinking to the point of intoxication was permitted, but that use was infrequent and managed within families and communities. Stable communities in pre-modern times were the golden age for alcohol and drug use. It simply wasn't the problem that it is today. So with the rise of industrial societies came dislocation. The destruction of traditional relationships, extended families, clan, family, tribe, and village comes addiction. Vast economic and social changes tore apart the ties that formerly connected people and placed people from their homes and shredded their value system that ensured their sense of belonging in the moral and spiritual universe. The same process is happening around the world with globalization. China is a prime example. That country's breakneck speed of industrialization has made it an emerging economic superpower, but the accompanying social dislocation will likely prove to be disastrous. Entire villages and towns are being depopulated to make room for mega projects like the Three Gorge Dam. Not really sure what that is, but you get the point. The pressures of urbanization are cutting millions of people adrift from their connections with land, tradition, and community. The social and psychological results of massive dislocation are not only predictable, but are already obvious. China has had to set up a massive needle exchange program in an attempt to prevent the spread of HIV and other infectious diseases among its rapidly growing addict population. According to the Ministry of Health in Beijing, nearly one half of China's estimated 650,000 people living with HIV AIDS are drug users who contracted the disease by sharing needles. There can be no doubt that the ravages of social breakdown, alienation, violence, and addiction will soon make vast and urgent claims on the attention and resources of Chinese authorities, academics, and health professionals. In the rush to emulate the Western world's achievements, many countries are neglecting to learn from the disruptions, dysfunctions, and diseases Western social models engender. Of all the groups affected by the forces of dislocation, none have been hit worse than minority populations such as the Australian Aboriginal population and the North American Native population, as well as the descendants of black slaves brought to North America. Dr. Mate states people were separated not only from their places of origin, cultures, and their communities, but also often from their immediate families. Long after the abolition of slavery, racial oppression and prejudice, along with economic deprivation, have continued to produce intolerable pressures on family life among many Afro-Americans. The link to addiction is obvious. Dr. Mate continues to state that tobacco and other potentially addictive substances were available to North American native populations prior to the European invasion. Even alcohol was widely available in what are now called Mexico and the American Southwest, as well as in Canada and all throughout America, prior to the European invasion. Also, not to mention, other potentially addictive activities such as sex, gambling, and eating, etc. were also available. Yet interestingly enough, Dr. Alexander mentions in this book, The Realm of Hungry Ghosts, there is no mention by anthropologists of anything that could reasonably be called addiction. Where alcohol was readily available, it was used moderately, often ceremonially, rather than addictively. With the mass migration of Europeans to North America, the economic transformation of the continent, came also the loss of freedom of mobility for native peoples. 
the inexorable and still continuing despoliation of their homelands, the loss of their traditional livelihoods, the invalidation of their spiritual ways, persistent discrimination, and abject poverty has fueled addiction in native populations. Let's talk about the scapegoat for a second. The Torah says that Ahoran, the brother of Moses, was commanded to take two hairy goats and bring them before God. Upon each, he was to place a lot or a marker on each goat. On one goat, he places the mark of people's sins to effect atonement upon it and sent it away to a zell into the wilderness. Cool. This was called the scapegoat, who was cast out and must escape to the desert. The drug addict is today's scapegoat. Viewed honestly, much of today's culture is geared toward enticing us away from ourselves into externally directed activity, to diverting the mind from the present. The hardcore addict surrenders her pretense about that. Her life is all about escape. And the rest of us can, with varying success, my success was dwindling, we can maintain the charade. But to do so, we need a scapegoat. So after the interview, I'm going to tie in a coincidence to this topic. But enough out of me. Let's hear from Carolyn. Carolyn, how are you? Hi, Paul. I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Carolyn. I'm excited. I got an email from you just a while back. You were saying you hit one year of sobriety on March 13th, 2018. So your sobriety date's March 13th, 2017. Nice job, Carolyn. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really happy to be starting my second year. Yeah, and before we get into the nuts and bolts of how you did it, let's get a little bit more background about yourself and your story. But let's first, let's start with yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Carolyn? Okay, I, I'm 40. I live in New Zealand, although I was actually born in mid-Wales. I have a family, I have a husband, um, I've got two young girls aged 10 and 7, and I've got an adult stepson as well, and I have my dog Tui. For fun, I like reading, I like just hanging out with the kids, love walking the dog. What do I do for a living? I've been a wee bit nervous about telling you this, Paul. I've actually just taken over a pub. <laughs> I know, I know. It seems a bit crazy, but uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it to be honest. And I suspect that probably being a sober landlady is quite a good thing. Well, that's exactly where I was going. Going to go with it. I've said on the podcast many times that recovery, sobriety should be an asset and not a liability in the workforce. And you're right. If you were drinking, if you were an active oh, alcoholic, mate, I, major yeah, liability I, in that profession. I know a little bit about that. Being alcoholic, owning a bar in Spain, it didn't yeah. go well. And I <laughs> no, often no. look back, Carolyn, thinking, man, what if I didn't have a problem with alcohol, or you know, how differently would that experience have gone? But that's how it went. So you have my blessing. The Friday is going to be a huge help for you. So that's awesome. But yeah, let's, Thank uh, you. let's, let's back it up a little bit. Talk to me about your drinking. When did it first become a problem? Did you suspect? And, and yeah, just, just fill us in. Well, I started drinking at probably the age 13, 14. I think honestly, I probably knew quite early on that I didn't drink like other people. It took a long time to actually accept that. And as I got older, kind of traumas happened and I would kind of drink to squash them down. I surrounded myself with other friends who drank like I did. So I think I kept telling myself, well, I must be all right because, you know, they all drink the same way I do. 
you know, I stopped when I was pregnant, so couldn't do that if I was an alcoholic. And I just made all of these excuses about why it was okay to drink this way. And then I was in an airport about to fly back to the UK for my brother's wedding, and I saw this book and picked it up, turned it over and read the back of it and I thought my god I've got to I've got to buy this book it was Lotta Dan's book um Mrs D is going without and it was her story about being an alcoholic housewife really and it just it gave me a completely different perspective on it I think I'd I'd had the classic image of what an alcoholic looked like before that you know it was some tramp under a bridge you know drinking out of a brown paper bag but Lotta's book I it enabled me to see that actually my drinking really wasn't healthy. I had to stop making excuses for it. And yeah, it, it forced me to be honest with myself, I think, about my drinking. And listeners, the name of this book will be in the show notes. You can go to recoveryelevator.com and, and click on this episode for the show notes. But what was the name and the title of that book again? And explain about, you know, you, you thought, you know, I can't be an alcoholic because I, I didn't drink when I'm pregnant and this and that. And, you know, about 5% of actual alcoholics live under bridges and have that stigma <laughs> attached. But, yeah, yeah, tell us the name of the book and what was that mind shift? Yeah, it was, the author is Lotta Dan, and the name of the book was Mrs. D is Going Without. And it was, it was her story, and she wrote it almost like a diary uh, as she went through sobriety. So as I went through sobriety, I would read her day one on my day one, and, you know, oh, I wow. kind of followed it through. So it was, it was like I had her beside me as I did it. And then when, when she'd finished that book, she created an online group much, I think it sounds much like your recovery elevator group. It, it's an online support group, basically, that's free to join. And so Lotta kind of got me sober, and then everyone on this site kept me sober. That is so cool. I've heard of a ton of recovery books. We have our own book club. I don't think I've heard of that title, and I wrote it down myself, and it'll be in the show notes, and I plan on adding it to our resource list and another Facebook group. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and so this is a web-based group. Sure. Another online yeah. Yeah, recovery recovery yeah. group. That is so cool. And so back us up a little bit maybe before you hit day one with the author Lotta. Um, and, and did you try anything else to quit drinking? Did you ever monitor oh, put your rules into place? Classic stuff like that, Carolyn. I tried it all. Yeah. You try to put I, ages put... by this. So were you like 39 when you first quit or, you know, when I... ages for your journey? Yeah. So, I mean, I went to uni and we all drank heavily there and I just sort of continued. And as I got older, the, the blackouts became more frequent, the hangovers became worse. And also I was finding that I was really depressed for a day or two afterwards. And I struggle a wee bit with depression anyway. Um, and then it was just making it so much worse. It was probably my late 30s that I really started acknowledging to myself that I can't do this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. But I kept putting off that decision to stop. It was just like, I'll do that another day. I'll quit someday. And in the meantime, I would have, I tried all the rules, you know, only drink beer, only drink on the weekends. But then the weekends would kind of stretch into Thursday and, well, maybe Monday as well. And it just, it <laughs> oh, never, yeah. ever worked. <laughs> yeah, it was hopeless. And it was just getting worse and worse. And I was getting more depressed. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I knew something had to change. 
So you mentioned a couple days after you were drinking, you'd feel this depression. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Because I know a lot of listeners can relate to that. Yeah, so I would wake up the next day and just be absolutely full of self-loathing, really, and shame and embarrassment. I've got quite an active imagination, and so I would start filling in all the gaps with what could have happened or what I could have said, and just my inner voice was so cruel to me. I mean, it would just be, God, Caroline, you're such a fucking loser. You know, just kill yourself. Why, you know, why can't you control your drinking like other people can? It would, I hated myself, really. And every morning I'd make these promises with myself, you know, this is it. I'm drawing a line in the sand from this moment on. I'm going to change my relationship with alcohol that somehow magically I would learn moderation. And every day I failed at that. Yeah. And it was just becoming more and more depressing. Caroline, I know myself and a lot of listeners can have that exact same line that you just said, except insert their own names. Paul, I hate you. Why can't you do this? This is a, a line in the sand. And then later that day, break <laughs> the problems for yeah. uh, hundreds, thousands of times. Uh, it's depressing. It, it's terrible. Yeah. And did you have a rock bottom moment? And if so, can you explain a little bit about that? I had so many moments that I'm deeply ashamed of, but... The final, and it's not a very exciting story, but I'd been studying part-time doing architectural technology, so drafting, and I was driving in. I had this early morning class every Monday, and I was driving into town, and yet again, I felt like absolute crap because of this monster hangover. You know, headache, nauseous, just no energy, depressed, and I was driving in and it was the fourth Monday in a row that I'd done this and I just thought god what am I doing you know why am I doing this to myself and I, I know you talk about conduits and it was something like that in that moment I just got totally honest with myself and I accepted that I have proved over and over again that I cannot moderate moderate that it really is a problem and it's affecting not just me, but my family, my career, everything. And in that one moment, I just accepted that I have to stop drinking. And I did. I've done three months sober already. And at the end of that 100 days, I had decided that I was cured and that I was fine. And so I went back to drinking, convinced that I'd be able to moderate again. And so I ended up drinking for another three months. And yeah, that Monday, I just, yeah, let go of all of the excuses and just accepted I am an alcoholic and I have to stop today. And that was my March date. Yeah, Carolyn, and, and thanks for listening to the podcast. And you mentioned the word conduits, which is is a value bomb that I haven't touched up on a, 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 upon in a while. And I'm glad you said it because... A conduit is basically that brief moment of clarity that that what I witnessed became fewer and farther in between as my drinking progressed. But mm. ever so often, um, and once a month, once every six months, once a year, I'd get this brief moment of clarity called a conduit where I was able to reach through. Like the window is open to sobriety and you could see through it clearly. And yeah, yeah. it's so cool that you saw it. And it sounds like you went three months without a drink. Your addiction was chirping you in your own voice saying, Carolyn, we're good. <laughs> yeah. We're cured. 
and fourth, yeah, exactly. on the fourth Monday in a row, you said, yeah, you had a conduit, a brief moment of clarity and you stepped through. Congratulations. And was that March 12th, that Monday? And so March 13th was your sobriety day? Uh, that was March 13. Um, And yeah, I I had this real sense of impending doom with my drinking. It was, I knew something bad was going to happen, you know, that I couldn't keep skating through drinking like this without suffering consequences. And so in that moment, I, I kind of asked myself, do you really need to wait until something terrible happens, until you get your DUI or until you really let your kids down or they're sick in the middle of the night and you can't take them to hospital or whatever it is. Uh, Yeah, I really asked myself that. Do do you need to hit a really low bottom? Yeah, Carolyn, in in part of that conduit, we have the brief moment of clarity. We can see the writing on the wall very clearly because there was times where I look on the writing at the wall, I'd be like, is that a Van Gogh painting or is that the fact that I'll get multiple DUIs and eventually kill myself one day? But, yeah. you know, in those moments of clarity, I can see the writing on the wall. I'd be like, oh, like, I do know what's coming down the road if I continue to drink. And that, okay, so cool that you, you saw it and accepted it because a lot of people don't. And you've heard me say on this podcast that we're the lucky ones. Mm. Um, we're the lucky ones to have had, you, you had a year plus of sobriety. Of, I'm coming on four years this September. That is so awesome. And, yeah, I hope we never go back, Carolyn. And and let's oh, talk about nice. that. Like, how, how how did you do it in the first month, and 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 how did you do it? Yeah, it was the first few months were really hard. I think drinking had stunted my emotional growth because I really had no idea how to deal with my feelings. I I didn't know how to self soothe, and so I really had to learn all of that. You know, if I'm stressed. It was always have a drink. If I'm celebrating, have a drink. You know, having a drink was the answer to everything. So I had to learn how to replace those things. You know, how did I, if I was stressed out, I'd have a bath or I'd walk the dog. And so I I had to learn so much about myself in that time. I mean, I thought I was doing great, but apparently my husband says I was very grumpy. (laughs) I, (laughs) I avoided going out. I would finish the day early and just put my PJs on. As soon as I got home, sometimes I bought a big fancy glass and a soda stream. So every night at five, I would pour myself this fancy drink with a, a glass straw. Yeah, treat yourself, girl. Yeah, well, I, I that was something I really had to learn how to be kind to myself. I don't think I'd really been very kind to myself at all before. And so, yeah, that was a big one to learn. And so I ended up, I worked out how much I was saving each week and I would spend that on myself. I would buy chocolates, flowers, fancy drinks, you know, whatever. But it was all about making this journey fun and patting myself on the back for what I was doing. Yeah, that's Um, a huge one right there. Making this journey fun as it can be a tremendous opportunity and patting yourself on the back, getting yourself chocolates mm -hmm. and soda stream. And I want to comment on something you said right before that, which pretty much sums up why it's so hard to to quit drinking and stay sober is, is, you know, for us, it's it's being an alcoholic isn't the problem. Sobriety is the problem. And like you said, drinking had stunted our emotional growth or your emotional growth, and it did with mine as well. And then, you know, the sobriety, that was the problem because whenever I would go sober for a day or a week, I found out that I had no coping skills. And you mentioned, you know, taking a bath, 
um, walking your dog. Sometimes at the end of the day, just getting in your pajamas and calling it good. You're getting a soda stream. That's it. Yeah. And that's yeah, a hard end time. End the day early. Yeah. That's a yeah, hard I mean, time it, for a lot of people. Definitely. I mean, I have, I've been through a lot of trauma in a short period of time. And I think I had just kind of squashed that down inside. So the other big thing for me was all of these feelings and emotions started kind of bubbling up and I, I actually had to deal with them once and for all. And that was really hard, you know, because I d deliberately avoided thinking about these things for so long. I mean, just a, a Reader's Digest version, my husband suffered a traumatic brain injury, was off work for two years. It really should have been four. We had the deadly earthquakes of Christchurch in 2011. This was all in the same six months. Then my second daughter was born 11, month, 11 weeks premature. My parents divorced after 40 years of marriage, and I finally fronted up to my dad, who's like this insane narcissist. And so we've actually been no contact for three years and all these things happened at the same time. And even though for some of that I was pregnant and not drinking, I still didn't deal with it. I mean, I just pushed it to one side and thought, I can't handle this right now. I'll park that and I'll deal with it some other time. And so, yeah, all these emotions were floating up to the surface. And it was really hard those first few months just finally processing it all crying a lot, really doing a lot of soul searching. But I mean, now I feel so much freer and lighter because I have actually let go of all of that. And I'm just going to say what you ju just said, because this is huge, like finally processing it and you cried a lot, right? There's no yep. right way or wrong way to process it. And then sometimes it results in tears, but all that stuff that you had parked, and I love that word, all that stuff you'd parked away has to come to the surface when we quit drinking and we have to deal with it. And if we don't deal with it at face value, it's going to be tough to find that long-term sustainable emotional sobriety. And can mm -hmm. you think of a specific time in early sobriety when you encountered life, when life just happens, it doesn't happen to us, it just happens, but something came to the surface and you're like, oh crap, what do I do now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, my father... My whole life had tried to tell me that I had to be someone else in order to have his love. You know, it was so I'd always tried to I'd always thought I wasn't good enough and that I had to be somebody else, that I had to be a big career woman. I had to make lots of money and all this. And I I finally had to look at who I really am um, and what is important to me and that I'm not a bad person um, and dealing with all of that. And, you know, with my husband, I, there was a night in hospital and the, the night he was injured, I'd got the phone call, you need to get to the hospital, you know, John's dying. And so I rushed to hospital. He was all over the place. I was pregnant and I started bleeding and it looked like I was going to lose my daughter as well as my husband. And I just squashed that down inside and just, hadn't really accepted how close it came that day. And so things like that would come bubbling up. And yeah, I, I cried for that me, you know, for, from years ago. And yeah, finally actually released all those tears that I'd been squashing down inside. Man, and, and, and walk us through a typical day in your sobriety now. How are you going to get, you know, the year two? Oh, uh, my life is just transformed. 
yeah, I'm I'm happy. I like myself now. I'm kind to myself. I've made these amazing friendships on the Living Sober website. And I think that's kind of my goal now to we've started translating those some of those friendships into real life. The the Kiwis that are there. We've got loads of Americans and Brits and people from all over the world. But the Kiwis have been catching up. We've just had actually a weekend away in Fongamatara Beach Town in New Zealand. Oh, wow. um, and yeah, oh, God, it was so awesome. There were like 25 of us, people who, the only thing we had in common is our sobriety, but there was just this insane connection between us all. And I think I'd really like to, yeah, keep developing those bonds in real life because I, I didn't do AA, so I didn't have... Yeah, I didn't have those real-life connections, so I'd like to keep developing those, I think. Yeah, and I know exactly what you mean with Recovery Elevator and the private groups. We had, we just had a Dallas one in January, and those connections are incredible. And tell listeners just how important it is to have those real-life connections. Oh, it's incredible um, because it, there's no fear. I mean, with all of these friends, I, I could just relax and be myself there was no shame. I could tell my story and tell it honestly. And there was no judgment. We're all each other's cheerleaders, I suppose. And yeah, just hold each other up. And and also, I mean, we, I went on another weekend and we just howled with laughter the whole weekend. It was amazing. And I remember thinking, oh my God, you know, sobriety can be fun. I'm happier now than if I had a glass of wine in my hand. I don't want, you know, it was, yeah, it really opened my eyes to how how much fun sobriety can be and how great those friendships can be because so many friendships change when you get sober. You know, I'd surrounded myself with friends who drink like I do. And so, yeah, some of those friendships went by the wayside. I, I didn't have alcohol to connect over. So it's been amazing to make these these new friendships and go on the journey with these people. And I can comment on that. That sober laughter, looking around the room, holding a soda water or a Diet Coke, whatever, yeah. and saying, oh my God, this is so much fun and I'm not drunk. It's one of the best feelings I've had in sobriety and in life in general because it's genuine. It's not masked. exactly it's this poison, this, this hallucinogen called alcohol, this drug. So it, it's a great feeling. And, and what have you learned most about yourself in sobriety, Carolyn? Oh gosh, oh, what have I learnt that that I'm okay? Actually, I mean that's been the the big change I think in sobriety is my relationship with myself. Um, it it used to be so well. I talked about my inner voice earlier. Um, you know, it just wasn't healthy. And I think yeah, in sobriety I've got this deep sense of con contentment now, you know, I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of the mother I am. I wake up every morning refreshed and ready to enjoy the day. Yeah, I like myself now. And for me, that's massive. And what's on your bucket list in sobriety, Carolyn? Well, to com continue developing these, these real life friendships. I'd like to, I mean, as a family, we like snow skiing, water skiing. I'd, I'd like to get fitter, I suppose, so that I can keep up with the kids. Yeah, I, I guess just really raise my daughters to not have that self-loathing that I did to really help them through life. And I, I couldn't have done that effectively when I was drinking. You know, I feel like I'm, because 
there are alcoholics in my family and I do believe that there is a genetic component. Mm -hmm. So I feel like part of my job is to educate the girls and show them that there's a different way, really. Lead from the front. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned earlier you have a husband and how is he doing now? He's great. We are, what are we, seven years on, I think. Wow. Yeah, so he was really, really lucky. It did take him about four years. And, and actually, I should mention this, um, I mean, his sense of humor came back within a year. So that was the big thing I was concerned about because he's just a really funny, kind guy. Mm -hmm. But he had terrible pain and the doctors here put him on OxyContin, which is highly, highly addictive. I mean, sure. it's known as hillbilly heroin. And he became horribly addicted. They'd put him on like the maximum dose oh, possible nice. that, yeah, normally reserved for terminal cancer patients. And he put his hand up and said, I'm addicted to it. You know, sometimes I'm chewing the tablets. And it took him a good year to come off that. And he was so determined. I mean, it was amazing, but really, really painful and difficult for him. So he had a really, he was really respectful of addiction, I suppose. So he's been a great support and a real, real cheerleader of what I'm doing. So yeah, he's good now. He's back building and yeah. Yeah. But still gets of, fatigued. Yeah. And you kind of just answered my question about that. I was going to say, how has he been through this process? But it sounds like he's been a huge part of your recovery team, which is so yeah. good to hear. Because I know, unfortunately, that's not the case with everybody. But sometimes that's just how it goes. You know, whether they're on board or not with Carolyn 2.0, you, you still got to make that decision for yourself. And, and Absolutely. Carolyn, I, I got to circle the wagons uh, over the, at the beginning of the interview. Yeah. We talked about this pub. All right. So you're filming in here. <laughs> Give me the backstory. So you did this, uh, were you cruising through the one ads Craigslist? Like, oh, pub for sale. <laughs> this is a good idea. How'd this come upon yeah. your life? Yeah, I'll celebrate a year sober by buying a pub. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you might be an alcoholic if. Um, yeah, exactly. No, it's really specific to this one. It's in our local community. It's a real locals pub, beautiful building with huge potential. And so, yeah, it, I wasn't looking for a pub. It's just we'd always admired this one and thought, God, if we could get our hands on that, we'd do this, that and the other. And so we're turning it into more of a, a family friendly, you know, good food kind of pub. But it, it's lovely. I mean, I'll come down here some days and there'll be all these mobility scooters parked out the front and we've got all the old timers in having a catch up. So it's not like a, a, a drinking hall, you know, it's a locals bar, a kind of community bar, I suppose. But will yeah, I love be, it. Will you be the barkeep in this location? Not often. I mean, I did say to to my husband at the beginning, look, I don't know that I really want to work evenings. I'm not sure I want to surround myself with drunk people. I don't really like being around drunk people anymore, uh, which is really hypocritical considering how often I was drunk. But I, I mean, I do help in the evenings when it's a party or something, but only when he's there so that he can help me protect my sobriety, I suppose. Sure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm more during the days. Or is it in the transition? Yeah, we took it over about a month ago. Oh, yeah. okay, okay, okay. Mm. And gosh, you know, I've bartended a lot sober, bartended a lot drunk. <laughs> and now it's like my vision as far as like, oh, I think that person has a drinking problem is usually pretty accurate. And yeah. you know, what what'll what'll you do or have you confronted it yet when somebody's at the bar stool that 
in your mind, you're like, man, this person probably shouldn't be here. Yeah. Yeah, there is. There's a guy that I can picture now. And um, he did do 30 years sober years ago. Yeah, I know. It breaks my heart. Um, so I did talk to him. I mean, I'm to begin with on this journey, I was really ashamed of the fact that I'm an alcoholic. I don't even like that word. I, I have a, a <laughs> problem with moderation. But but these days I'm really open about it, and so I did sit down and talk to him. And just, I mean, I just put it out there that I'm sober, I suppose, so that if he ever, because he's got to come to that point himself, just like I did. Sure. So sure. I've just kind of with those people, I I just put it out there that I am sober. So when they get to that point, they know where to find me. Yeah, and you mentioned the word liberating earlier in the podcast, and being open mm. about it, especially in those scenarios is liberating and, and you can be of service and helping others. And yeah, I mean, best of luck in that endeavor is as long as you can keep, you know, the sober at the top of the priority list and you'll probably have oh, some definitely. pretty good drunk fuel. I remember, you know, I used to DJ in bars. I probably did it a hundred times sober. The later in the night it got, the easier it was to get sober, to stay sober is because people yeah. would come up like slurring their words and just, they turn into drunk idiots and you're like, man, I'm making the right decision to stay sober. Oh God. Yeah. And I just, you know, you see it at some of the school events as well, and I just think, God, I, I just, I'm so happy I don't drink now, and that I, my children don't have to see mummy like that. I mean, it, it would happen after they went to bed, so, and I never drunk drove with them or anything irresponsible like that, but it's just, I don't want them to ever see me like that at a party or whatever, you know? Yeah. Just, just yeah. I'm so glad my standard poodle Ben no longer has to watch me drunk. So I, yeah. I get it, yeah. <laughs> kind of. <hurt. laughs> and Carolyn, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I am. All righty, Carolyn. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Well, I mean, I've heard it said here before, but it's definitely the lack of memories, the blackouts. You know, I'd normally wake at sort of three in the morning and I'd have this feeling of utter dread you know, oh, no, I've done it again. And then I'd kind of stumble around the house, making sure that I still had my coat, my phone, my handbag. You know, I'd scull a couple of pints of water and that would then slosh around inside me and I'd just feel really sick. Mm. And then I'd, I'd lie in bed just torturing myself until it was time to get up with possible scenarios of what might have happened, who I might have upset, what I might have said, or who might have witnessed me so out of control, you know? And then in the morning, I'd kind of be peeking out from under the duvet to work out if my husband was pissed off with me. And and then I'd try and sort of piece it all together with snippets of information from him. And then I'd, then I'd spend days trying to avoid seeing anyone who might have seen me out of control. You know, it was just awful, really awful. So, yeah, definitely the blackouts because my imagination would fill the gaps with probably far worse than actually uh, happened. Exhausting. Absolutely yeah. Exhausting. And next question, Carolyn. We've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you really can't control your drinking? Uh, yeah, it was definitely that Monday morning because I had, having done 100 days, and I had dealt with a lot of emotions in those 100 days, and I, I thought, Oh, I'm cured, you know, I can go, I can drink normally now. But I knew that going back to drinking, that this was my last chance. You know, if I stuffed it up this time, then 
there was no hope of me ever being able to moderate. Mm -hmm. And that Monday morning, the fourth Monday with a hangover, it was just like, mate, you can't do this. You know, you are incapable of moderating. You've proven that over and over. And, and that was really, yeah, that was my elf shit. You know, you can never drink again, Caroline. Yeah. And we touched upon this a little earlier, but what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Um, yeah, definitely to continue developing the sober friendships, just to to keep pushing myself, I suppose, out of my comfort zone, trying new things. I'm a bit of a, an adrenaline freak. So yeah, for our 10th wedding anniversary, we did a skydive together. Um, yeah, I love going on the biscuit behind the ski boat. Um, yeah, th those sorts of things, just to keep living life more. Now I don't lose my weekends to hangovers I've got so much more time that and just to walk more with my dog because that's so good for just my my happiness and gen you know well-being yeah. so yeah to take Tui out more Tui I understand that one fully and and what's your favorite resource in recovery gotta be living sober so this is this free online community in New Zealand yeah it's been life-changing for me because in the early days I've practically lived on this website and I'd just be sort of tapping away oh god Wolfie's here I'm here and suddenly you've got 10 replies and 10 people going you know just hmm. just dig your heels in and get through it and um, that I mean I read I just inhaled sober books in the beginning I loved drinking a love story just thought that was awesome blackout wasted I mean I yeah I read so many books and then obviously Lotta's book Mrs. D is going with it. And I have to say, you know, your podcast is right up there too. I have listened to every single episode, either in the car or normally walking the dog, actually. Pop my headphones on and I just, yeah. Well, thanks for listening, Carolyn. And in about, uh, you know, about, I think, eight weeks from recording this, you're going to hear your own voice. In oh, my God. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's so cool. Thank you so much for listening. And, uh, again, those resources will be in the show notes. Um, and next question, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Definitely something my friend Lizzie told me. She said, Caroline, make the decision, which really means that you make the decision that I don't drink, you know, and really accept that, you know, be before I'd been, I'd constantly be debating in my head, you know, whether or not to have a drink. Is this really forever? You know, can't I handle it now? The head chatter just drove me crazy. You know, I'd let Wolfie whisper in my ear, go on, one won't hurt. You know, oh God, you're so boring these days. You were so much more fun when you were drinking. And I was constantly negotiating and debating whether or not I really was doing this forever. But once I'd made the decision, it was non-negotiable. You know, I don't drink. It's that simple. And if Wolfie showed up, you know, I'd just dig my heels in and flip the bird until he left again. It was, yeah, make the decision. I assume Wolfie is the metaphorical alcohol, correct? Yeah, Wolfie, Wine Witch, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I, I personalized it. it, you know, so there I could really swear it that in, you know, yeah. I used to turn the, the air blue sometimes with my swore like a truck driver to <laughs> Wolfie, yeah. Just like I, yeah, person personified 
Uh, yeah, just yeah, like Gary. I personified yeah. Gary. Yeah, just my addiction has a name, and he's Gary. His name's Gary, and he's a dick. And yeah. next question: <laughs> What parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober, Carolyn? Well, um, this was something that someone said to me online um, in my early days, and they said, "Picture yourself in five years' time, and you have to be brutally honest and." really create a vivid picture you know first picture yourself if you're still drinking in five years time you know what does your life look like how are your relationships with your kids your husband what's your career like how do you feel about yourself what are your weekends like really picture what your life will be like if you keep drinking and then picture what life might be like if you're sober and once i'd really sat down and and gave that time and really pictured it, it was a no-brainer, you know? Yeah, so Carolyn, one of the problems with alcohol as opposed to meth, heroin, or cocaine is alcohol kills by the inch. It kills really slow, so slow that we yeah. can't even see the down progression. So doing an exercise like that is a good way to avoid that. I, I agree 100%. And before we depart, Carolyn, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcohol gift line. You might be an alcoholic if when you go to the fridge to pour a glass of wine for you and your husband, you fill yours up to the rim and slug that first inch down before carrying them back through. <laughs> yep, that works. Uh -huh. <laughs> best of luck with your future business endeavors with the pub. Thank you. I've heard of, I've met sober bar owners before and it's a, it's a lot better than being a, a drunk bar owner. So best of luck. Oh, and thank yeah. you so much for joining us and thanks for listening to the podcast. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for helping me stay sober. So I'm flying on an airplane, listening to this book in audio format. I'm taking notes and I've got a lot of questions. Like I said, I didn't really agree with much of that Dr. Gaber Mate was saying. So I'm writing down questions, but I still find it pretty profound, extremely interesting, basically saying that addiction was not present before the European invasion, before globalization. Like that's, that's kind of profound stuff. The fact that anthropologists really never even recorded addiction, that's crazy stuff. Uh, that's, that's definitely news to me. And so I get to where I'm going and guess who I see? Yeah, yeah, the guy who freaking wrote the book. I actually went back to my hotel room, um, pulled up the audiobook, Googled the name, just as like the Google images. I was like, holy buckets, you've got to be kidding me. And guess what? So my life has been pretty much geared towards recovery the last three years. If there's a book about recovery, I'll read it. I devoured everything that came in my direction. This is basically, basically my life. I love this stuff. And here's the, uh, here's the, here's the twist. I didn't, no, I can't even say that yet. I can't, it'll, it'll all make sense in next week's episode. Please listen and please listen with an open heart. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs>